we've taken the book of Acts, which is the second half of the Gospel of Luke, written by Luke, uh, the only Gentile to write anything in Scripture. I think it's pretty cool. Uh, he, uh, he wrote the Gospel of Luke, takes Jesus' life up to where he, he, res- he raised from the dead, and then he ran out of scrolls, so he starts a whole other one called Acts, right? And that's what we're in. So we started that about a year ago. We broke it up into three parts. The first part uh, was uh, really we saw the kingdom of God come. How, how did the church begin in a hostile environment, starting in Jerusalem where they just killed Jesus? How come it just grew so rapidly from there, right? We saw the kingdom of God start and grow. Then we took a little break and we did some other studies, and then we went back to part two, right, last March. We got to see how the kingdom of God grew, not just from the Jews, but also to the Gentiles, Right, which was huge. And I, I think that most of us are grateful that Gentiles are now welcome into the kingdom. So we got to see how that began. Now we're going to Acts 3, the part 3, which is the last, really the last portion of the book of Acts. We see the kingdom of God not just grow uh, to the Gentiles, but grow to the entire world. And we see the kingdom of God overcome every kind of obstacle that was thrown at it. And it's the same kingdom of God that we have today. And so that's what we're going to be in today. And you say, Aaron, that's all great and good, but that's all history. Why should I care? Let me tell you why you should care. This world is messy. Did you know that? It's a messy, messy world, right? I think like, we just do normal things. It seems like no matter what we start, it seems like stuff just happens to, to, like, uh, to get gooped up. I'll give you an example. It was a simple thing this last week. I was going to come home. Right? I was working, had a couple of classes, so I was working a little bit late, so I was teaching classes afterwards. I'm going to write my wife, say, hey, uh, I'm on my way home. I love you. Right? And so I, I text that to AMY, and then I text that thing, and I send it. Little did I know that I've got more than one Amy in my phone, and I sent it to an old classmate that I haven't seen for probably 15 years. And uh, so I had the, the, uh, our 10-year reunion, which was a long time ago, and... Uh, so, this Amy wrote back, question mark? And I glanced down at my phone, because I'm trying to leave, right? I'm trying to get out of here. And so, I thought Amy was playing coy. It's like, I love you, beautiful. I'm on my way to see you, right? <laughs> to which I got a, uh, a thing back that says, this is inappropriate. I'm married, right? And... Uh, <laughs> And then it, I was like, what? Of course you're married. You're married to me. And then I read the, the person, the name, and I was like, oh, no. So I wrote, I'm sorry. <laughs> and then I was going to explain the thing, except for it autocorrected to I'm stupid. <laughs> it autocorrected. It just went from bad to worse. Some things you can't, you just can't salvage. You just had to leave it, leave it go. The world's messy, isn't it? But like every time we try to do something, even simple things, it messes up. And you know why the world is messy? Because the world is broken. This is not the way it was supposed to be. Right? Siri wasn't supposed to autocorrect things to crazy stuff. Right? The world was perfect. God gave us perfection. He gave us real paradise. Not Estes Park close to paradise, but true, real paradise. And then we hijacked it from him. We messed it up. And we took it away from God. We said, we'll play God from here on out. Thank you very much. And God, in his mercy, did not crush us at that point. He didn't smack us down in the garden and say, nope, I'm God, I'm going to start fresh right now. He didn't make us bend the knee as eternal slaves to him. That's not what he did. He said, fine, you want to play God? Have at it. I'll let you try. I'll give you a fair shot. I'll step out of the way. And humans have been playing God ever since, doing what we think is right in our own eyes. And by doing what we think is right, think about pretty much every argument you've ever had. Didn't you think you were right? Didn't the other person probably think they were right? Right? Fighting causes wars, causes death, and all kinds of tension. How many families have been destroyed because you have two people who are, all think that it's, I'm right in this and you're wrong. You don't meet my needs. It's not about me. And then you find this war that happens in the home and it destroys it. Children being torn and separated from their parents, losing affection for those that care for them, parents who can't stand their kids anymore because we just have our own way of doing things and other people just won't do it the way I want it to be done. We all play our little God. We all create all this division and destruction. How many wicked things in this world have been done in the name of righteousness? Isn't that horrible? The thing is not the problem that we're a moral people. All of us are moral. The problem is that we're wrongly moraled. We 
We do things our own way. We, we've broken this planet. We've taken paradise and we've made it. Look at the news. Is it paradise out there? We've wrecked it. And we suffer that. And so we laugh about things, how life can get messy because it's broken, but unlike some things like crazy text, sometimes life can get broken in ways that doesn't make us laugh. Sometimes life can be broken in ways that make us cry or angry or hurt. All of us have scars, don't we? All of us have seen our dreams that we thought were forever, things that were so good get wounded, some of them die. We've, we've messed up relationships. We've blown it when we've needed to stand strong. Every one of us has failed. And that way, I think I've heard this so many times in my ministry. They say, uh, you know, this world is broken. I, I feel this brokenness. And sometimes people come to me and they say, I just feel cursed. You ever feel cursed? Like you're trying, you're trying to do the right thing and then the wrong things just seem to happen. There's this resistance against you. You just can't seem to get momentum. It's like trying to overcome, but the world overcomes you. Have you ever been depressed? The world's messy because it's broken. It's broken actually because it truly is cursed. When we hijack the world from God, he said, I'm going to step away and this is what's going to happen. It's going to be really tough for you. Right? Your relationships are going to be wounded. Your work is going to be wounded because you're not working in, in the way that I asked you to work. You're working out of sync of how the world was supposed to be and relationships out of the way that they're supposed to be. This world is going to be damaged. We have this thing called death that ends us fortunately, mercifully, so we don't have to live in this perpetual cycle of destruction forever. But it's a difficult place. This is the reality we live in. I didn't bring you here to like make you all gloomy. I know it's rainy today, right? But the world's messy. And it's messy because it's broken. It's broken because we feel the curse. and We suffer from it. This is why today's chapter matters. What you'll find is the kingdom of God is the kingdom of God. It is not the kingdom of man. The kingdom of man brought the brokenness, the mess, the curse. That's what happened. But the kingdom of God undoes it in a profound way. And we see today how the kingdom of God overcomes in some of the most ridiculous, crazy ways. And that's what we'll get to see. Before we do, to prepare our hearts for that, our memory verse that we have for this series, this comes to us from Acts 20, 24. This is the words of the Apostle Paul near the end of his life. And is the attitude of a disciple that we grow into. I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Acts 20, 24. Make this a prayer. I told you, I almost didn't make this our memory verse for this series because when I say I consider my life worth nothing to me, I can't honestly say that yet. And how do I know I can't honestly say that? Because I find that when somebody gets in my way, involves my preference, my life means a lot to me at that particular moment. And I get mad, right? I have like this little war inside. So typically it happens to me in traffic or at the grocery store, right? Right, this is where it happens, or when somebody's stopping and looking at the beautiful wildlife that we see, and I want to get somewhere. At those moments, my life means a lot to me, and I become very selfish. But this verse, because I know that it's true, this is Paul didn't write this on day one. He wrote this near the end of his life. He recognized the truth of it that there's actually something more than just me. He would move from selfishness to selflessness. He lived like Jesus said. He's not. He said, "If you keep your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for His sake, you find real life." Purpose is God doesn't want you to be dead. He wants you to really live. And that's what this is about. And for me, when I see this, this, this last two weeks, I've had an extra week because I, I picked this verse a while back. So I've been memorizing it for two weeks already. What happens is, as I'm going in traffic or whatever, and I start to get upset, or, or somebody does something I don't like, or I'm seeing one of Thomas's baseball games and the empire seems to be blind, right? One of those things, what I do is that this verse comes alive. Because I'll go, and then I'll be, oh, yes, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim, right, is, is to do what God has told me to do, to finish the task, complete the race. It's a marathon. It's okay. What is it to testify to the good news? That becomes this point, not just conviction, but also correction, so I can step back into the life that God wants. And I'll tell you, he's beginning to change me. In two weeks, he's beginning to change me. This is the power of the word of God, so I encourage you, take it, memorize it. Now, get into God's word. Take your Bible out and turn it to Acts chapter 16. That's where we're going to be today, Acts chapter 16. 
And if you have one of our Bibles, it's going to be on page 771. And if you forgot your Bible day or you don't, need, don't have one, don't worry. We've got some in the back by the, the sound booth. You're welcome to take one of those. And if you need it, keep it. It'll be our gift to you. Now, as you turn to Acts chapter 16, let me catch you up on where we are because this is a story, right? So context matters. Last week, Acts chapter 15, we had the Council of Jerusalem. The Council of Jerusalem was the first council of the entire church to address a very important issue. How is a person supposed to be in the kingdom? right? What does it really mean to be a Christian? The thing was is that back then, remember that our faith comes from a Jewish heritage, right? The Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And so the faith began with Jews, which makes sense. And so what happens is that the church began to grow, Gentiles were included in. And as Gentiles were included in, the question was, in order to follow the Jewish Messiah, do these Gentiles first need to become Jews? And there were some who said yes, and there were some who said no. And so there was conflict in the church. And so instead of fighting it out and having a church split, they talked it out. They went together. They had the council. The elders got together, the council of Jerusalem, and they, they looked at the evidence of what God was doing and everything, and they said, unified, no, Gentiles do not need to become Jews first. They don't need to be circumcised in order to become a follower of Jesus. And because now the church was unified on this issue, it said that everybody was happy they heard about this. They're like, great, now we understand what God's doing, and the church began to grow. Well, this message needed to get out, right? So there was churches that were planted all the way through this area called Galatia, right? Turkey, modern day area, Turkey, where's that? Right, Galatia. And it was planted all the way up into there. And so you have churches that have a lot of Gentiles in it. And so Paul and Barnabas, who planted those churches, said, we need to take this letter from Jerusalem to up to there so that way all the people will know how it operates, how a person is saved. And so they have this message, you don't need to be circumcised to become a Christian, and they go up and they're going to they're gonna share that letter with all of the Christians. But uh, there was a guy named John Mark, wrote the Gospel of Mark. Okay? He was a younger guy, and he was part of that first missionary journey along with Paul and Barnabas. He was Barnabas' uh, nephew, and he chickened out or something happened. I don't know, maybe he got sick, nobody knows. But he made it halfway through the journey, and then he went home. And Paul uh, was like, well... I will not do a missions trip with you again if you can't make it. That's Paul. And Barnabas, his uncle, was an encourager. was like, well, uh, I think that we should give Mark another try. And so Paul and Barnabas, were, Paul was like, this isn't too important. I can't be babysitting this kid. When he's grown up, tell him to call me, right? And Barnabas was like, well, let's grow him up through this. So they had a different understanding. So they said, listen, the kingdom is bigger than this. Barnabas, you take, uh, you take uh, John, Mark, and you go the south route, and you bring the letter that way, and then I'm going to go north, I'm going to bring this guy named Silas, who the council of Jerusalem sent with the letter. He's an official emissary from the council of, uh, of Jerusalem. And so Paul takes uh, Silas, and they go north to the churches that they planted in the first missionary journey. So this starts the second missionary journey of Paul, and this is where he went. The bottom of the screen, you will see there's Jerusalem, right? That's the bottom little city there. They go up to Damascus, and from Damascus, they go up to Antioch. That was the second seat of power of the church, right? That was like Jerusalem 2, right? That other big, and that's where Barnabas and, and Paul were, were based out of. So that's where today's story begins. And so we see Paul and Silas travel, not through the south. That's where they start in Antioch. They don't travel south. But they travel north through Sicilia, right? And they go all the way up to uh, the cities that they had planted the churches in in their previous mission journey. So they wind up in this city called Lystra. And at Lystra, they uh, met up with the church that was there. It was growing. They delivered the letter. You don't have to be circumcised to be a Christian, right? Uh, Gentiles, welcome. And they met there a, a Christian whose mom was a Jew. His dad was a Gentile. Right? His dad probably had died at this point, but his mom was a Jew, so he grew up with Jewish traditions, uh, and his grandma Lois, was a Jew as well, and they were all Christians. They were all Messianic Jews. Right? And Timothy was this young man who was uh, full of faith. The church uh, loved him. All the people saw him, respected him, and respected his faith. And Paul says, I want to bring Timothy with me on this journey to these other churches to drop off this letter that says you don't need to be circumcised in order to be a Christian, right? So the first thing he does with Timothy is he circumcises him. What? Why would he do that? We'll talk about it in a minute as to why he was, but he does, and it's important that he does that. And after, so because he circumcises, now he can bring Timothy with him. They go up through that area called Galatia. Now, Galatia had a... Uh, um, was a, a, 
we see the book of Galatians was written to the churches that were in that area, right? And so uh, there are a lot of Jewish synagogues and community in that area, so this was a big deal in that spot. So now after they leave uh, Lystra with uh, Timothy, they're going to go plant new, gospel, new churches, right? So where are they going to go? Well, Asia looks nice. Now in the Greek world, Asia was right there, okay? It wasn't north, it was right there. So that's the, the province of Asia. And doesn't it make sense that's where they would plant churches? Because Asia was really close to Galatia. It was very similar to Galatia. Uh, it was close by. There was lots of Jewish synagogues. That's where they would go to explain the Jewish Messiah to the Jewish people first, right? And as a church grew, then they would invite Gentiles in. So it makes sense. There was a, Asia had a lot of money. And you'll notice that in Asia that you have, um, it's right on some waterways that are there. So there's a lot of good trade and all that kind of stuff. So it's like, let's go plant the church in Asia. Well, they take off towards Asia, and they say, we're going to plant the church there. And then the Holy Spirit says, stop, don't plant the church in Asia. So they're like, all right. So they're like, okay, you don't want the church in Asia. That's weird. Let's go up to Bithynia and Pontus, right? See above the north? Because that would make sense, right? If you say, okay, you don't want us to go here south. We're going to go north because there's still land, and there's a land bridge there between there and Thrace, right? And so let's go plant the church there. But it says the Spirit of Jesus showed up and said, don't plant the church here why? I don't know. It makes no sense. But they're like, okay, Jesus, your church, your ways, your rules, we'll keep going. So what do they do? They skirt all the way up top of Asia. Now that looks like a little tiny dotted line to us. That was days and days and weeks of walking. Think about that. And these guys passing by synagogues, we could plant the church there, Jesus. Jesus is saying, nope. We, we could stop here. Nope. So they go as far as they possibly can, and then they run out of land at this little town called Troas, Right? as far as they could possibly go. Jesus, you led me to a dead end. And at that dead end, some important things happen. The first one is they meet Luke. Does Luke sound familiar? Yeah, he's the guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts that we're reading right now. How do we know they met Luke here? Because at this point in the Scripture, you've got to verse 10, we go from third person, they went and did things, to we went and did things. So now it's a first person story. This is where they pick up the Dr. Luke, right? Gentile. And so they pick him up there, and so apparently God wanted Luke to be reached with the gospel. Kind of important for us because how many of us have come to faith through the gospel of Luke? Pretty amazing, isn't it? Something else happened there. Uh, whilst they're there, Paul uh, has a vision at night. And so he's getting ready and he has this vision and it's a Macedonian man. Apparently that's what you look like in Macedonia because that's what I did in Google search. That's the only picture that I could find. It's a Macedonian man saying, please come share the gospel with us. And so Paul knew that God wanted him to go to Macedonia which makes no sense. Look at where they're at. They should. Rationally, you'd think, okay, let's go north where there's land. And then through Thrace, and then we'll go to Macedonia. But that's not what God asked them to do. He said, I want you to do a crazy thing. I want you to get on a boat. Not a lot of synagogues in the water, by the way. And I want you to go all the way over to Macedonia where there are very few Jews, right? And where the, you think about Western thinking versus Eastern thinking, right? Macedonia, Greece, Right? Athens, all of the, 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 it was a very different way of thinking over there. The idea of one true God was like very foreign over in this area. We're getting closer and closer to Rome. This just made no sense. But God told them to go. So what do they do? Well, they, they say, well, let's uh, charter a boat. And they do. And they get on a boat and they travel in and they uh, end up walking inland to the largest, closest city called Philippi. Philippi was a Roman city in Greece. So the citizens that were born there were Roman citizens with all of the rights that afforded. If you're a Roman citizen, you had better things for taxes, you had better, like, better laws, protections. You couldn't be jailed or beaten without a trial, which is a nice thing I think we all agree with. If you were a slave or not a Roman citizen, they could beat you up whenever they wanted to. They're like, I'm having a bad day. Just like you, sometimes people that are mean kick their dogs, don't do that. But if you're one of those people, that's how they treated the slaves. Right? That's how they treated not Romans. But if you were a Roman citizen, you had rights. And so this city, Philippi, was very proud of the fact that they were a Roman city. In fact, you even read in the story here, they say things like, us Romans do things this way, right? And so they have Roman laws. But in order to stay a Roman city, they had to abide by Roman law. It's very important. If they broke Roman law, then Romans say, you're no longer a Roman city. Right? So it was a big deal. So they had to follow the Roman ways. And so here's a city, there was a lot of soldiers that were in it. There was a, a city of great trade and all that kind of stuff. But you know what wasn't there? Well, there was not any synagogue. This big city, and there weren't enough Jewish families to even have a synagogue. 
And so the apostles that you see, uh, Paul and, and uh, Silas and Timothy and Luke, they're in this city and they're like, we want to chant a, plant a church. Where's the synagogue? No synagogues. Okay, where will the Jews, if there are any in the city, be? Well, they would go outside of town and find a place of prayer. So they asked around, found where the place of prayer would be. It's like a little small group of Jewish people that would go and pray. And they show up, and what do they find? They found a woman there named Lydia, who was not a Jew, right? She was a God-fearing Gentile. She was a businesswoman, a successful businesswoman. She dealt in purple. And for us, we're like, oh, yeah, it makes purple, big deal. You know, we have the, the bobcats up here in Estes Park. That's our color, purple. And we have purple everywhere. A lot of you wear purple. But I'll tell you what, not very long ago, you would not be wearing purple. Why? Because it was expensive, right? It was really costly to have the color purple. You could only make it from a few things. And in fact, purple was so expensive that even Roman emperors, there was a Roman emperor that told his wife she couldn't buy a purple dress because it was too extravagant. It was worth so much more than gold. Like if you had purple, that's why there's no purple on flags, right? It was expensive stuff. Here was a woman who was able to trade in purple. And guess where her clientele would be? The very upper echelons of society. This is a woman who had a lot of money and a lot of, of uh, social capital. She was also a God-fearing Gentile. Not a Jew, but a God-fearing Gentile. She believed there was one true God. But I mean, this is not your, your typical ideal. Like, God, you brought us all the way over here to plant the church. There's not even a, a synagogue, and now there's not even a Jew to talk to. And not only is there not even a Jew, she's a woman. She's not even a man. This is like totally opposite of what they thought it would be. But they shared the gospel with her at that praise of prayer. And guess what? Lydia accepted Jesus as the Messiah. And they baptized her. And Lydia had so much influence that everybody in her household were like, if Lydia says that this is right, we want it too. And so her and her whole household were baptized. And then Lydia said, hey, if you really accept me as a fellow, your sister in faith, then I want you to stay at my house, right? Because she would have had a nice house. And so all of a sudden, we have the Paul and, and Silas go to the pretty swanky, you know, digs, right? They go in there. It's pretty nice. And her house became a hub for the Christian church. Really, the church in Philippi really met there at her house. Pretty cool. So from that house, now they're going into the city, Paul and uh, and Silas and Luke and Timothy, they're going into the city of Philippi, and they're telling people about this Messiah. That the people had no idea, what? What's a Messiah? And why would you need one? And they're explaining people what the Messiah was. And so uh, so happens that there was a, a slave girl who also was there in the city. And the slave girl happened to have a demon in her, which is fun. And so this demon was able to help tell people their fortunes. And so the slave girl's owner capitalized on that. They're like, we've got some money-making machine here. And so they would charge people to have their demon-possessed slave girl tell them their future, so they made some, some good money on that. And this little slave girl followed Paul around as he was presenting the gospel, and she kept testifying that what he was saying was true. She kept saying, these men are from the Most High God. They're telling you the way to be saved, Right? And she's going and she's following through. And so you're getting testimony by somebody who's probably, you know, not really good to have as far as testimony. You're like, you're on the, which side are you on? But also Paul saw her. Even though she was giving testimony of Jesus, she needed the freedom of Jesus. And so after a while, he turned around and he said, you know what? In the name of Jesus, I command you to be gone. And the demon gets cast out of her, right? And so all of a sudden, then we find the next thing is a mob. There's a little demon girl, right? Now she's good, and then the mob comes because the owners were like, hey, I was making money on this girl. Who were you to take away my opportunity to have money, right? And so they riled up some of their friends. They're like, these guys are troublemakers. And as we know in today's world that when you have an angry mob, it's contagious, isn't it? People just have manufactured rage, and then it catches, right? Because it's fun to be mad at a chariot enemy, I guess, right? So that's what they did. And they were like, these people are teaching us not Roman ways, right? And they're causing, they're riling up other people. And you're like, actually, the slave owners are like, you're the ones that are riling up the people, but where is rationality in the middle of a mob, right? So this mob is there, and they're like, let's get these people, right? Let's get Paul and Silas. And so they bring them to the city judges and the, and the city council, all of that. Instead of, you know, going through law, they're like, well, the social mob has told us this is what we're supposed to do, so we will appease them. So they strip them, and they beat them right there. Right? They have them whipped and flogged like Jesus was. It was ugly and horrible. They were beat up bad. And they didn't even give them a trial, even though Paul and Silas were both Roman citizens. 
And so then they put them and they took them to a jailer and they said to the jailer, be mean to these guys, right? Watch them, make sure they don't escape, right? So the jailer's like, all right, and you're sure he wasn't gentle with them with their nice fresh wounds. And he throws them not just in the prison, but the innermost jail cell in the prison, the, the stinkiest, darkest cell. And he locks them in there and he doesn't just put them in the cell, he puts chains around their arms and he also puts chains on their feet, right? So they can't even move around. So there they are sitting in the cell, Right, that God told them to come to the city, and they find themselves beat up, sitting in a dark cell. You can't talk to anybody, right? Chained, you can't even move. And it just makes no sense, right? And so what do they do? They start praising, which I hope to attain to that. I don't think I'd have different things coming from my lips just at that particular moment, but again, growing up in Christ. They were there praising God, because what else could they do? So they were praising God, and they continued to praise God until it was like midnight. So all of the other prisoners, I'm sure, appreciated that. And then at midnight, there was a powerful earthquake. The earthquake was so powerful that it says that the prison doors flew open and all the chains of the prisoners flew off. Now think about how big of an earthquake that was. Prisons are built stronger than most houses, right? If the prison is being shaken to its core, you can guarantee there are houses that are falling down. Right? This is catastrophe. Businesses are falling apart. If you've ever seen a place of an earthquake, it's not pretty. Right? So now there's catastrophe everywhere in the middle of the night. And they only have lights to turn on. Right? It's dark. It's weird. It's chaotic. And the doors fly open. And the prison guard comes out. Right? And he sees the prison with the doors open and all of this. And if you were a Roman prison guard, uh, you were in charge of all the prisoners. And if any of them escaped, you had to pay their penalty. That's how they kept them from letting prisoners out early, I guess. So the prison guard goes out and he looks and all of the prisoners, he thinks, have escaped. So now he's going to have to have all of whatever their punishments were. And he's adding it up in his head and he's like, pretty much my life is over. Even though he has a family inside, this is a point of just absolute desperation. I mean, this is a horrible night for him. So he pulls out his sword and he's like, this is it, I'm going to kill myself. Well, uh, Paul and Silas are inside the prison from the inner cell. They're looking out and they see the prison guard there at the lights and they say, hey, don't kill yourself. We're all in here. He's like, What? Because this doesn't make any sense. The prison guard says, all right. And he, and he tells his other soldiers, get the lights in there. And so they bring torches in there. And they find that really all the prisoners are there. And he recognizes his life isn't over. And then it dawns on him, something weird has just happened. Why were these crazy guys who were praising God, why didn't they escape? And so he says to them, sir, what do I have to do to be saved? Why would he ask that? Well, there was this demon girl downtown all the time testifying. These guys are from the Most High God. They're telling you how to be saved. Paul and Silas praising in prison. He says, you have something. I want it. What is it? How am I saved? And they said, believe. They repent. Turn to Jesus. And that prison guard in that chaotic moment accepts Jesus as Lord and Savior. He and his whole family. And he washes their wounds. He was gentle with them now. Brothers in Christ. Takes care of them, sets a meal before them, and then, he, then they baptize him. And this guard who was uh, charged to keep them in prison was set free by his prisoners. I think that is so cool. And then the next day we read that the city council had bigger fish to fry now. Before they were going to pick on these two troublemakers, right? But now they had a natural disaster to take care of. So they go down to the prison and they're like, like, the prison we wreck is is wrecked, so why don't you set these guys free, right? And Paul and Silas are like, "Uh uh-uh. They said, we're Roman citizens and you didn't give us a trial and you broke Roman law. And uh, they're like, uh-oh. Paul and Silas are like, if you want us to leave, you better come and ask us yourself. You're not just going to sweep this under the rug. So now these guys who have got a city that's in disarray also now have this huge thing because if, they've got, if, the, if Paul and Silas make us think of this, those officials could lose their Roman citizenship. The city could lose its, its rights. This is a big deal. So the city fathers are now, they're coming over. They're like, oh, Whatever you want, right? We will not bother you whatsoever. You are amazing, right? Please, would you leave? <laughs> Paul and Silas like, we'll leave when we feel like it. Thank you very much. And you'll notice that all of a sudden that God used that angry mob to protect the church. So where did Paul and Silas go? To Lydia's house, where the early church was. I imagine they invited the, pris- the, the jailer over there too. And the church began there, and after they had the church founded, they got some elders, got it working, then they said, okay, it's time for us to go. So this is the story that we have. Oh, there's the jailer. This is the story that we have of Acts 16. Now, what we find in this chapter is the kingdom grows in mysterious ways, not like how we'd expect it. Nothing in this chapter happened like I think Paul and Silas thought the, the kingdom would grow in. 
And there's some things that help us see how God's kingdom overcomes the mess, the brokenness, and the curse of this world. So three things to pick up from. The first one is this, is that inconvenient integrity opens doors. Where do I get that from? Well, Acts 6, uh, verse 3, 16 verse 3, actually 1 through 5, you see the story where we have Timothy and why he was circumcised, right? The reason they circumcised Timothy was for integrity, right? It says that they wanted to take uh, Timothy along with them, and so he circumcised him. You would say this was the absolute wrong timing because their message was you don't need to be circumcised to be a Christian. So why circumcise Timothy? Well, the answer comes in the next phrase. It says, because all the Jews who lived in that area, they knew that his father was Greek. So, understand this. Timothy was, uh, his dad was, was Greek, his mom was, was Jew, so he would have grown up with Jewish traditions. He would have looked very Jewish in a lot of things. His dad probably had passed away at this point, and his grandmother, all this. But he wasn't circumcised. And the Jewish people knew this. And see, the letter... the. The letter from, from Jerusalem was this, that just as you're not so, you don't have to become a Jew to be, be a Christian, you don't have to stop being Jew to be a Christian. And Galatia, this was a really big deal too. If you read the book of Galatians, this was a really important thing for them. If Paul didn't circumcise Timothy, he would be sending a message that was contradictory to the will of the of Council of Jerusalem. He's saying, listen, this is about grace through faith. But if he didn't circumcise uh, Timothy, it would be very easy uh, for, for those who were Jewish to say, no, the Christian faith is, is basically a replacement of what God did in Israel instead of being a grafting in. It was a really big deal. And the Jewish people knew that he had this heritage. And so if Paul just turned a blind eye to it, Timothy, they would see as an apostate. He's not just like a Gentile, which they wouldn't expect to follow the ways of God. He was doing the, all, the, all of the, uh, the festivals and all of those things. He, he acted Jewish. He needed to be Jewish. He's Christian too. And so because he was circumcised, he was able then, uh, to, or Paul was able to continue to go to the synagogues and be able to preach the gospel to them. Timothy was able to be accepted. The doors were open for, but it's not why he did it. He did it because it was the right thing to do. Even when it was inconvenient. Even when doing so could have caused people to be like, you're not doing the right thing, right? Perception. Paul didn't base his morality on other people's perceptions. He based his morality on what's the right thing to do, and let's do it. And that's exactly what he did. And because he did, the gospel was able to grow forth from Galatia in a powerful way. The second thing that we find is uh, not just that the gospel uh, grows through integrity, but we find that it also has that it, uh, it, goes on, it takes the hard road, that Jesus rarely takes the easy path, right? Rarely. Rarely does Jesus take the easy road. And I think it's important. Like, there's nothing wrong with the easy road. Every sane person would take the easy path. If you, like, if there was an easy way to do something and a hard way to do something, if you take the easy way, people are like, you're not crazy, right? That's typically a, a smart thing to do. The problem is in our sin nature and our selfishness, that easy path is usually about what's best for me, not what's best, right? So for us, the easy path in life typically takes us to, to, uh, to do what's comfortable or right for me, but it's not what truly is right and best for others. And so Jesus takes the long way around. He takes us the right way to do what's best. Sometimes Jesus will ask you to do things that make no sense to you, right? Jesus asks us to do things um, like love your enemy. The easy path is to hate your enemy, isn't it? That's the shortest distance. My enemy is an enemy for a reason. There's a reason they hate me, and I'll probably hate them back, and I don't want to trust. So I'm not going to love them. That's the short path. But that short path takes us to destruction because if we continue to hate enemies, we're going to hate everybody eventually. We end up with all kinds of wars and division. Jesus says, I'm going to have you take the long path around. I want you to love your enemy. That's a little harder, isn't it? It takes a little extra time. <laughs> How about this? The short path. Forgive people when you feel like they've earned it. When they're really repentant and, and, and you're feeling, forgive them. Long path. Jesus says, forgive people even when they don't deserve it because God forgave you and you didn't deserve it. I want you to show grace. I want you to, to let go of those things. Now, when we forgive others, we actually find that our lives are actually more peaceful ourselves. But sometimes we have to take the hard thing. The other thing in our life is that Jesus takes the hard path usually. In fact, even Jesus said the way to hell is broad and wide and it's easy and everybody finds it. But the way the kingdom is narrow and it's thin and it's very few find it and even fewer take it. The way of following Christ is going to be oftentimes harder. You're going to have to, to be selfless when the short path is selfish. Right? You have to think about other people, not yourselves. 
You're going to be uh, generous when the short path says to, to take care of yourself first. You're going to be kind when, when the self path, the shortest distance, is going to say, hey, I'm going to be uh, just about me, or I'm going to get what I want. He tells us to live a whole different way. And I'll say this, in your life, if everything is comfortable, you might be on the easy road. Like if everything that you do in your life seems to just make sense to you, it's all just kind of easy, right? Maybe you're not following Jesus, but you're following you, right? There's something in the Christian life, it's a, it's a daily dying to the self, right? It's a daily saying yes to what God has, and he's going to take you somewhere you wouldn't walk on your own. That's why you're following him, which means that we're going to have to be uncomfortable in our faith. Just one step out of our comfort zone, but we're going to have to be uncomfortable. Expect that. And so this is a way that we begin to look at uh, that Jesus really takes the easy, easy road. Sometimes he makes you walk all the way through Asia and it makes no sense. But that's because he's going to take you somewhere else different. Why did he have them not stop in Asia? I don't know, but I know this, he had other plans. There's a guy named Luke that needed to be picked up. But also, do you see where they landed when they went through, through Asia? They ended in Macedonia. Oops, there it went. To Macedonia. Macedonia, Greece, right? Where Athens was. It was the center of, of Western thought. When you think of Western thinking today, what comes to mind? What's it synonymous with? Judeo-Christian thinking. It wasn't that day, way in Paul's day. Like when he went to Athens, Western thinking was Alexandrian thinking. It was a pagan way of thinking. Multiple gods, all kinds of uh, the Epicurean lifestyle, just eat drink, be merry, because tomorrow you die. That was Western thinking. That's not even what the world thinks about Western world anymore. God sent Paul and Silas to Macedonia because he wasn't just changing a few hearts. He was changing the mind of the world. Paul and Silas would never have known that. That's why. They, they went back eventually to Asia. The gospel got there. But first it needed to change the mind of the world. They couldn't have known it. I'll tell you this. Sometimes God asks you to do things that make no sense. Follow him. Because he's up to bigger things than you can ever imagine. The third thing we have in here is that the gospel does not require perfect conditions. I love this. When has there ever been perfect conditions? Ever. I'll start my diet when, right? I'll start exercising when. I'll make a budget when. If we waited for perfect conditions, we would all die broke, fat, and alone, right? There's no such things as perfect conditions. The gospel grows where the gospel is. That's what the thing is, is that the kingdom of God is growing into a broken world, a messy world. We don't wait for the world to stop being messy. How do we know this? Look at Philippi. Look at it. Look, was that perfect conditions when they showed up? They show up looking for a synagogue. What do they find? Lydia, a Gentile, a businesswoman, everything different than they thought they should find. And it's exactly what they needed. And they didn't say, well, it's not perfect conditions. There's no synagogue here. We're going to see you later. We'll go somewhere else. No, they planted the gospel where God sent them. That's what they did. They did God's work. They finished the race, right? They completed the task. They testified of the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what they did. They didn't wait for it to be perfect. They started where they were, and God did something amazing that they could never have imagined, that that woman, Lydia, her house would be the place where the church would begin to meet. It was the foundation of the church in Europe. How could they have known? Or how about this? They, they went to the, the, the market, and what do they find? A demon-possessed slave girl. This is not what you think. It's not perfect conditions to go preach. It wasn't easy. It was awkward. But they didn't stop. And you know, that's, they didn't just see this girl as an obstacle. They see her as a person to be loved. They testified to the good news of God's grace to her and set her free. And because they did that, other imperfect conditions took place. You get a mob. That's not the best ideal conditions to, I don't know, share good news. When people are there, let's beat them up and kill them. But you know God used that mob, didn't he? They were faithful even in the mob. Because the mob took place and locked them in the prison, once they got out of prison, the church was pretty much the, the authorities, the Roman authorities, they were hands off the church. Because Paul and Silas at any time could go back and, and, and file a complaint. And so the church was protected thanks to the mob. But they didn't wait for perfect conditions. They praised in the middle of prison, locked and chained in the floor. And so you see the jailer. Is this the perfect guy to evangelize? You think Paul and Silas, when they're being locked in the prison, after being beaten by this dude, now locked in there, and he was being mean to them, would think, we're going to evangelize you by the end of the night? No. What do they do? They said, we're going to be faithful now. 
In the conditions that we have, we're going to praise God because he's at work in this. We trust him. I don't know what he's doing, but he's here. And then in the midst of an earthquake, you think that they were thinking, great, we're free. No, they were like, ah, we're going to crush and we're going to die because it's an earthquake. It was terrifying. And in the midst of all of that, they were so not selfish. They were so not self-centered that they were able to see the prison guards' needs. Think about that. Here was a guy who was being mean to them. It would have been a little bit nice to see him run his sword through himself a little bit. Like, you just whipped us and locked us in here. Let's see you get what's coming. But they didn't. They didn't wait for perfect conditions. They didn't wait for everything to be right. They called out to him and said, you know what, we're still here. And God used that opportunity to, be, to bring salvation to this jailer's home. I'll tell you, God's kingdom does not need perfect conditions, which is great, because sometimes we look at the state of our culture, and a lot of us freak out. It's so scary out there. Yeah, God's bigger. He's bigger. Some of us look at the state of our families, our lives, or the things that we're going through, and we think, oh, it's so messy, it's so broken. Yeah, true. God's bigger. He can work today. He can work today. The kingdom of God can overcome today. It doesn't have to get better. The kingdom of God goes into the mess and makes it right. That's the good news. How do you apply it? How do you bring application of this in your life? I think the first thing that we need to do is we need to start overcoming the mess in this world by integrity. Integrity. Stop doing what you think is right. Start doing what God says is right. Start applying that in our life. Well, I tell you, husbands, when we start laying down our lives for our wives, caring for them, like, like God, like Christ laid down his life for the church, marriages get better. Right, wives, when you start respecting your husbands, you start caring for them and honoring them the way that the church is supposed to honor Christ, you know, marriages get better. Parents, when you start caring for your kids the way the Holy, the, the, the Holy Father cares for us, meeting needs, guiding, directing, helping, the, the, the world gets better. Children, you start honoring your parents the way that the church is supposed to honor our Father God, that the world gets better, right? Neighbors, when you start caring for the people that live next door to you more than just yourself, you start praying for them, caring for their actual needs, even if it costs you something. Fences come down. The world gets better. I'll tell you, it never feels like the right time to do the right thing, but it's always the right time to do the right thing. We have to stop saying to ourselves, well, if I do the right thing, what will other people think? Just do the right thing. See what God has to tell you to do, and then trust Him. You never know what doors He's opening up. Inconvenient integrity is what the church is built on. So choose integrity. The second thing I think we get from this, you've got to beware of the easy road. You have to beware of it. We have to be willing to say, I'm going to step out where it's going to cost me something, where it's a little bit risky, where life is a little bit dangerous. I have to start loving this person, forgiving that person, sharing with this person, caring for that person. Stop being about me. One step outside the comfort zone. I think with this is to say, where am I at my life? Oftentimes, all we need to do is to stop talking and to listen to the inner dialogue. What are you telling yourself all day long? Are you having selfish thoughts about how other people aren't doing what you want? Are you having self-degrading thoughts about how miserable and awful a person that you are? Right? Are you having thoughts that are, that are saying the things of discontent? Oftentimes these thoughts, these, these things, it's, it's, it's the easy road for us. It's the road to destruction in our own life. Take some time and listen to where you're at. And then invite God into it. Right? That's why we do the memory verse. That's where I'm at. Because I start to feel anger and hatred towards other people, where the Word of God starts coming into my heart and my life. Right? I don't consider my life worth nothing. God's already saved me. Right? I have one aim. That's to do what God told me to do. And that aim is to testify the good news, which is I experience it first. That's what I need to do. I need to love people in a way that's so much greater than I could on my own, but I have to begin with the fact that inner monologue that says, Aaron, it's about you. I need to lay that down. Right? You have to be careful of that easy path because it will ruin your life. It will ruin marriages. It ruins families. It ruins businesses. It ruins culture. Choose the way of Christ. Follow him. A little bit harder, a whole lot better. Third thing I think we need to do is to overcome the curse. How do we do that? We stop waiting for perfect conditions. The world is cursed, yeah, but the kingdom of God overrides the curse, overcomes the curse. That's what it does. It brings restoration where we've brought brokenness. That's what it does. Recognize that we are the forerunners. We are pioneers of the faith, right? That's what we're supposed to do. We are God's missionaries. We are, we are his ambassadors. We go out into a broken world. We don't wait for the world to be perfect to have open arms to embrace us. We go to the people that hate us and we love them first. That's what we do. We go into the brokenness and we bring the healing. 
because we bring Christ and he's the only one that can heal. And so we have to say, I'm not going to wait until so-and-so to be faithful. I'm going to start being faithful today. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be faithful today, and I invite you to join me in that. Faithful now. Trusting God now. I'm going to focus on opportunities, not the condition. The world is rough. Yeah, it's been rough for a long time, but my God is with me. And therefore, I know that he's not just with me, he's gone before. Remember that uh, memory verse we had for our last series? I hope so, two months of it, we were in it. Philippians 2, 10. That you're God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which he's prepared in advance for you to do. If God's with you today, he's also gone ahead of you. This world's not so broken, he can't fix it. He knows exactly where it is, and he's called you into it to bring his kingdom. To undo the curse of death in people's souls and their lives. To bring healing. We just need to go. We need to trust that he's there. So, choose integrity. Beware of the easy road. Don't wait for perfect conditions. Let the kingdom of God overcome. Let's do that, huh? So, how do we do that? Next step for you. On your connection card, there's a next step for you to follow to bring God's kingdom. And there's some ideas that I have because I don't want you to leave the day and not start applying. So if you take your connection card on the backside, there's some suggestions. The first one is this. Memorize Acts 20.24. I've already shared with you how that verse is already making an impact in my life. How it's changing me from the inside out. God's Holy Spirit is using it. I invite you, take time with God's word. Don't just memorize it, but then also think about it. Use it as prayer, right? Let God's word work. How about this this week? Maybe you read Acts 16. I talked about it. You go and read it. Read Acts. See what is in there. It's only like a page. You can do it this week. I guarantee it. And if you need a Bible, you take one. How about this? Pray for wisdom. Why? How do you know what God's wanting you to do if you haven't talked to him? You haven't asked him? Here's a great promise in God's word. He says, listen, I want you to take the hard road. How would Paul and Silas know not to go to Asia unless God told them? Maybe there's an Asia in your life that you would stumble into and miss out on the better things. Talk to God. Say, God, I need your help. I need your help with my family, with my husband, my wife, with my kids, with my business, with this difficult person I'm dealing with, with this fear. Ask him for wisdom. He says in his word, he promises he'll give it to you. And he doesn't give it, most people like this, he doesn't go, boom, zap you in the head and you feel like Solomon. You're like, oh, I know all things. That's not how it happens. You pray for wisdom and he gives you exactly what you need in life to shape you so you become a wise person so you make the right choice. You pray for it, it'll happen. How about this? You need to trust and obey. God tells us what he wants, now we need to do what he wants. So for this week, maybe there's something in your life. You've been taking the easy path, you feel conviction of God, right? Turn that conviction into right action, right? There's something. You know that you've been out of sync with what God wants. So I'm going to trust God's way, not mine. I'm going to obey it this week. And if you're going to do that, let me know. I'll be praying for you. If there's something else that the Holy Spirit's telling you to do, write it down. I will be praying for you this week. If you have a prayer request, this is your opportunity. Write that down, those final things. I pray for you every single week. If I know how to pray, even better, because specific prayers get specific answers. So tell me how I can pray with you. In just a minute, we're going to take our offering. Our tithes and our offerings, you put them in that envelope and drop in the offering basket as passed, but then take these connection cards as well. Drop them in the offering basket. Let God do a work in you as, uh, as we begin to have his kingdom grow in mysterious ways, even through us. All right, with that, I'm going to pray for you for the offering, and then uh, we'll have the worship team come and close us with a little bit of of, uh, worship. So let's pray. Father God, I pray your blessing on those that are here today, your congregation, your family, you whom you love. Bless them, Lord. Father, we want to see your kingdom come in us so that it can come through us. Lord, I, I I want to have you and your ways in this world that are, don't cause such mess and such brokenness. It undoes the curse that we've all wallowed in far too long. So God, I pray your blessing on this congregation. We've made commitments today. Help us to keep those in a way that honors you. Change us from the inside out as we do. Transform us into curse breakers. Father, I pray that you would help us carry Christ to this community in a real and a right way as we carry it home in our heart and our lives through these actions. Father, we pray for a blessing over the tithes and the, and the gifts that we bring to you today, an expression of our worship to you. To say that you've given us everything. And so, Father, we ask that as we bring back some to you that like you've asked, Lord, that you would bless it, you would grow your church for your glory, that your kingdom would come here and your will would be done right here in Estes Park, just as it is in heaven. We ask all of this in the powerful name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.